so well, I'm going to quickly introduce uh, our next uh, two speakers. So, um, Louisa Long is Inez Penn's granddaughter, um, although sadly Inez died before Louisa was born. Um, she studied languages, French and Russian, at Cambridge, and has spent time living in both Paris and Moscow. She worked as a solicitor until last year, when she left to complete a Master's in International Relations at Soas University in London. And uh, Simon studied Roman uh, languages and literature at the University um, College of Wales at Aberystwyth and Birkbrook College London. He has enjoyed a wide-ranging career, including teaching, translation, lexicography, finance, and publishing. He's lived and worked in Spain and travelled widely in Latin America, and jointly with Catherine Phillips Smiles, he has translated literary works from Spanish into English across multiple genres, including novels, short stories, plays, poetry, and medieval minstrel songs. So over to you to tell us all about Ines Pern. Okay. Uh, good afternoon. Um, Louise and I have been kindly invited by Marina Hussofa the Osmark Scholar to say a few words about Mary Agnes Pern, known to her friends as Inez, who was awarded the Diosma Scholarship back in 1936. The name Mary Agnes Pern probably doesn't stand out prominently from the list of 99 or 96 or however many there were, 91 probably, with a few gaps. Um, but she was quite a remarkable individual. We'll divide this talk broadly into three sections. First, her family background and life experiences up to 1936. Then her experiences in Madrid over the Easter 36 vacation. And finally, what she went on to do with the rest of her life. The first two sections draw heavily on Inez's first two novels, Spanish Portraits and Marguerite Riley, which were both closely autobiographical. And they'll be illustrated by two readings by Louisa from Spanish Portraits. We should declare an interest, and that is that um, I'm a co-founder of the Clapton Press, which republished Inez's first two novels last year, and I'm her first cousin once removed. <laughs> Louise Long, as uh, Marina mentioned, and who will read the extracts, is Inez's granddaughter. Um, Inez's background is detailed in her second novel, Marguerite Riley, which is essentially a family history and a biography of her aunt. Um, Inez's mother was the youngest of seven children, and they were third-generation Irish immigrants, descendants of refugees from the Great Hunger. Inez's grandparents married in 1876. Her grandfather was an iron puddler, one of those guys with long shovels who poked them into uh, hot foundries. Um, and his mother, his, her, her grandmother was a seamstress. Um, her grandfather wasn't the luckiest of men. First of all, he had an accident at the foundry and his right leg was crushed by a truck loaded with iron ore. He invested his compensation in a dairy in Newport uh, with his own cow, cow and a horse and a cart for deliveries. Uh, within a couple of years, disaster struck again, and he fell victim to typhoid. 
And at that time, people thought that you caught typhoid from milk, so his dairy went bust inevitably. Um, that led him to the Cardiff slums. By this time, they had six children, with another one in Asia's mother on the way. With no prospects of finding a job, her grandfather was reduced to boiling up sugar to make barley sugar sweets to sell in the market. Then he caught tuberculosis. And then he literally coughed up his lungs in front of his children in his slums and died on the spot. He was 40 years old. Inez's mother spent much of her childhood in a pauper's orphanage and then moved back to her mother's house in the Clarkes slums, two doors down from a chap called William Pern. And they married. Um, and their daughter, Mary Agnes Pern, Inez, was born a year later. But by this time, her father had already died. So you could say that the cards were rather stacked against her before she was even born. Her mother moved to Cardiff, uh, sorry, her mother moved to Lisbon with babes in arms in um, 1917. Um, sorry, 1913 that would have been. And um, where one of her elder sisters was working as an English teacher. They were smuggled over on a coal ship they stayed there for most of the World War, and then they moved to France, um, where Inez spent most of her childhood as a charity pupil in convent schools, and between terms staying in her aunt's rundown boarding house in Pimlico. So a rather a chaotic childhood, but in 1933, Inez won a scholarship to study modern languages at Somerville with a particular interest in Spanish. Um, it's not a great deal known about her time um, at first in Oxford, but she was close friends with Marganita Lasky and Sally Graves, Robert Graves' niece. Her first novel, Spanish Portrait, describes the summer she spent in San Sebastián in 1934 working as an English teacher. She was closely chaperoned by a cousin and a crusty old lady who they were lodging with, who was uh, Mrs. Mrs. Um, Pearson, I think she was called. The novel provides an outsider's impression of the political tension in San Sebastián in the summer of 1934, which largely centered around the renegotiation of the Concierto Económico and the significant tax concessions it gave to the Basque authorities. There was also unrest in Catalonia and Asturias. This intention was reflected in a series of wildcat strikes described in the novel, eventually leading to the full-bone rebellion in October 34. The novel then fast-forwards to her final years as an undergraduate, 1936, when she became the first woman ever to win the, the ultimate studentship. The journey to Madrid involved at least four different trains and took several days. She arrived early in the morning and spent most of the day searching for somewhere to live. She eventually found a pension at the top of the Gran Vía, opposite Plata Callao, so right in the centre of Madrid. This was half an hour's walk or a ten-minute tram ride from the library to the Instituto de Herencia de Don Juan. Mm -hmm. 
The library where Maria had to work was situated in the rich residential part of Madrid, near the Castellana. Besides being a library, it was a museum. The building and everything it had in it had been left to an institute for research by the founder, a well-known scholar and collector. Letters of recommendation had preceded her from England, and everything was prepared for her arrival. She was received with great ceremony. The door was opened by a small, round man, whom she discovered later to be the caretaker. She tried to explain who she was. Ah, the English scholar, he said, shook hands with her and hurried off to find the librarian. The librarian, Padre Moreno, came briskly down the wide marble staircase, shook hands with her, introduced himself and led her off to present her formally to two of the trustees. The trustees were imposing, both white-haired and massive, and they shook hands with her, bowing slightly as they did so, and hoped she would find everything she required and urged her to come to them without the slightest hesitation if she ever needed anything else. As it happened, she never saw them again. The ground floor belonged to the trustees. The library and the museum took up all the first floor. It was a very wide house. And the rest of the house was still as it had been when the founder lived there and was kept as a kind of museum of his books, pictures, furniture and photographs. Maria's desk was in the right wing of the library. There were only two desks there, facing the desk of Padre Moreno. It was a valuable, antique, handsome piece of furniture and had been equipped with everything she could want. Pencils, rubbers, pens, blotting paper in three colours, a ruler, paper knife, notebooks, loose paper and beautiful notepaper and envelopes bearing the coat of arms of the founder. Everyone from the trustees to the padre to the caretaker and his wife declared to her that they were at her disposal. Padre Moreno, short, dark, thin, with a sly expression, was the embodiment of Maria's idea of the Spanish Jesuit, the ultramontano. Um, she imagined that when he was not in the library, he was in the house of some aristocrat plotting the restoration of the monarchy. Actually, he was not a Jesuit, but a secular priest. And his whole time was devoted to the library and research. He also gave catechism lessons to some children three times a week in the library. He was friendly and at once showed Maria around the library and the museum, the books he liked very much, and explained the workings of the catalogue with a restrained but passionate pride. His attitude to the museum was cynical, and as he flitted lightly from one priceless ceramic to another, he kept saying, it's a good specimen if you like that sort of thing. And when he came to a small broken vase, he giggled as he said, and that's worth thousands of pesetas. After he had shown her around the main room, he looked at her slyly and laughed. I think there are some Flemish door knockers somewhere, if you'd like to see those. Maria said it would do for some other time. So Inez worked relatively hard during the six weeks she spent in Madrid, spending two hours at the library every morning and two to three hours there every afternoon, which is pretty good going when I recall my own undergraduate days. Um, when she'd, been in San when she'd been in San Sebastián in the summer of 1934, her then-boyfriend had introduced her to an artist, Alonso, and commissioned him to paint her portrait, hence the title of the novel. He was now living in Madrid, and they started an affair. It wasn't all work. Her introduction to Alonso's circle of friends and her status as a foreigner 
meant that Inez had access to places which no well-bred young Spanish lady would have dreamt to enter. Places like La Graja in the Gran Vía, apparently frequented by writers and artists, or Baviera, where one could get very good lager beer, accompanied by generous tapas of prawns, olives stuffed with pimentos, curled anchovies, and crayfish. They even paid the occasional visit to Chicotes to poke fun at the señoritos. Each bar seemed to have its own political bias, because of all, of course, this was April 1936, and there were other things going on. The tail end of the Bienio Negro, violence in the streets. Um, one evening, coming back from the library, Maria found an enormous crowd in Calle Alcala. People overflowed from the pavements onto the road so that the traffic could only advance at a snail's pace. Drivers shouted at pedestrians to clear the way, but no one took the slightest notice of them. The noise was deafening, motor hooters shouting in a kind of distant roar. Maria's tram was held up. She looked out and saw about six stationary trams ahead and more behind. Several passengers decided to get out and walk. Others began to talk to each other excitedly. The conductor questioned a man in the street. What is it, Maria asked. More trouble, there's been a shooting. Finally, she decided to get out and walk too. It was impossible to get to the farther, less crowded pavement, pavement because the traffic would take any opportunity to advance, jerking forward suddenly with no regard to anyone in front. A maddened stream of cars, taxi drivers, tram drivers. So she was forced to the nearer pavement, there to be swallowed up by the crowd, all moving downward and bearing her along with them. Struggling to keep upright, she edged her way to the side where she might find a doorway in which to shelter until the crowd had passed on. But they were all already full, and she was forced to go further and further in the wrong direction. Several times she asked, what is it, but was either given no answer or told that no, told that no one knew yet. Most of the crowd, like herself, seemed to have been caught up in this by accident. At the bottom of the long street, where it turned out into a sort of open square, she could see some guardia civil, some mounted, watching the crowd without moving. People at the back began to run, pushing the others forward. A panic was beginning. Distant shots were heard. She hurried on with the others, terrified because she was small and entirely hedged in, so that she had no idea what was happening or where she was going. Everyone began to run. There were more shots. Now her heart was beating so hard that she could hardly breathe. She decided to act at once before she was trampled on, trampled on, and summoning every ounce of strength she possessed, fought her way to the side, pushing ruthlessly with her elbows. There was no doorway for her, but she flattened herself against the wall, standing on her toes so they should not project far and would have less chance of being trodden on. She stayed there firmly, although many tried to push her on, her arms and legs getting knocked, and at one moment an umbrella pressed so hard against her thigh that she thought it would go through her, and she almost broke it as she pushed it away. At last, after a long time, the crowd thinned a little, and she could move along the wall, taking care to keep close to it at all times. Those in front of her turned off to the right down the first side street and started to run. She did the same, but sticking to the wall the whole time. The people round her halted abruptly, faced by a number of others rushing down on them from the other end of the street. She saw a doorway, ran to it, and stayed there. 
Needless to say, she escaped unharmed. Her relationship with Alonso, in the words of her daughter, proceeded tortuously. But on her departure from Spain, just after Easter, both were apparently keen for her to return to Madrid that summer. The events of July intervened, and the civil war that ensued made her return extremely difficult. As her daughter, Vicky Randall, pointed out, unlike many of the women who did go to Spain during this period, Inez didn't have the support provided by membership of a political party. She had no nursing skills, and her financial position remained precarious. But she didn't just stay home and mope. She became actively involved in the Spanish Aid Committee at Oxford, and it was this activity which brought her into contact with such budding luminaries as Philip Toynboy, Toynbee, Isaiah Berlin, and her future husband, Stephen Spender. She met Stephen in late 1936. By then, she'd graduated with a first and had won another scholarship to enable her to pursue postgraduate studies, editing an edition of poems by Luis de Gongra, which was also the subject of her BLIT thesis. Stephen and Inez married in December 1936 after a six-week engagement, much to the shock and horror of Inez's mother and her aunts. Spender later told his friend Elizabeth Bowen that at the reception held in his flat, Inez's disapprovingly Catholic relatives kept to themselves like the masked avenging figures in Don Giovanni, all dressed in black. So in early January, Spender flew down to Spain on an unsuccessful mission with the Daily Worker, leaving Inez to travel on her own, not together as planned, to Brussels, where she would continue her research on Gongola at the Bibliothèque Royale de Belge. I think that's one uh, archive source that hasn't been mentioned yet today. So. And that's a library card. By mid-February, Spender was moaning to Virginia Woolf that he was regretting his marriage to Inez. And in fact, they were already leading very separate lives, with Spender engaged much of the time in trying to extract his former lover, Tony Heinlein, from a Republican Labour camp, where he'd been sent for desertion from the International Brigade. Heinlein was eventually released in July. Um, in August 1937, Spender commissioned a portrait of Inez by Sir William Goldstream, which is now held in the Tate Britain. And around this time, she was also photographed by the Bauhaus photographer, um, Lucy Maholi. Um, and a couple of these prints are from the National Portrait Gallery. And the one in the middle was recently displayed at the Tate Modern, sorry, the Tate uh, Britain. Um, She started writing Spanish portraits in the autumn of 1937, adjourning work on her thesis, and finished it in December 1938. Around that time, she also met Charles Madge, the sociologist and founder of Mass Observation, and left Stephen Spender in 1939. She submitted her B-Lit in September the same year, 
but the scandal of divorce evidently put paid to any thoughts of becoming a, a don at Oxford. Um, instead, she worked with Madge on the Mass Observation Project and continued writing, producing five novels in all. Spanish Portrait was followed by The First Rebellion, which was also biographical, drawing on her time as a sixth form pupil at Notre Dame Convent in Southwark, where she led a pupil's revolt, which resulted in the removal of the head teacher. It's not exactly the same as Greta Thunberg, but um, indicative of her strength of character and determination at a very early age. Her final novel, Siamese Counterpart, was published in 1958, describing an affair between a, an academic on succumbent to a university in Thailand and a local politician's wife. It's a very thinly disguised account of one of her husband's um, multiple infidelities, apparently. Um, Inez and Charles had two children. Victoria, better known as Professor Vicky Randall, who became a pioneer in the academic analysis of gender and politics. She was kind enough to write an afterword for the new edition of Spanish Portrait, published in January last year, and sadly died this last November. Her brother William had a brief claim to fame as a pop star in the late 1960s and now lives happily on his small holding in Mid-Wales. Inez died in 1977 at the relatively young age of 62. That's it. So let me introduce uh, Dr. Alan Foy uh, to you. He's Reader Emeritus uh, in History at the University of Durham and an authority on the history of the military orders of the Middle Ages. And something that I discovered today that he was our Bodley's librarian tutor. Um, um, in uh, 1994, his work was collected and published, um, a collected studies series as Military Orders and Crusades, and, um, and you were an Osma student. So. <coughs> I'd like to thank Marina for inviting me to come and speak today. In fact, she was quite insistent that I should do so, it seems. And I couldn't help wondering whether she wasn't trying to get as back as close to 1920 as she could. <laughs> In which case, perhaps I should apologize for not being a few years older. Well, I first had the Day Osborne studentship in 1956, when, as a history postgraduate, I was studying the military order of the Templars in Aragon and Catalonia in the 12th and 13th centuries, also in Valencia in the 13th century after that had been conquered. And I think I'd decided to try to do a thesis on a Spanish subject because it seemed to provide more opportunities and offer greater scope than what was perhaps being on offer elsewhere. At that time, if one was going to be doing something on England in the Middle Ages, you were likely to be put on to the history of a particular monastery which wouldn't necessarily reveal anything very new but was given to you because it hadn't been done before. So I, I didn't feel much like 
trying English history, Spanish history were much more interesting. Well, it was suggested to me first that I should have a look at the Aragonese aristocracy. And I spent a month or so in Oxford reading around this subject. And I began to realize that it perhaps wasn't a very appropriate one because it would have meant reading sources scattered all over the place and picking up bits of information here, there, and everywhere. And if I wanted to do a thesis in three years, I thought I probably wouldn't be able to cope. And the idea of studying the Templars was suggested to me by Tony Luttrell, who was a, oh, the list has gone, Deosma student two years earlier, and who had been working on the hospitallers in Aragon in the 14th century. And this struck me as being a much more manageable subject because there were collections of Spanish documents regarding to the Templars in quite considerable collections in both Madrid and Barcelona. So I decided to try and talk and study the Templars in the 12th and 13th centuries. Now, in looking back at my experiences, my time as a Dalesma student, one's going back for more than 60 years, and I'm afraid my memory is not infallible by any means, and I fear that I've forgotten a lot, and I may in unwittingly have invented a few memories too, but I hope what I'm going to say is more or less accurate. Now, the idea of applying for the Diosma studentship, I think, was put to me by Peter Russell, my supervisor, who was then professor of Spanish studies, and as has been mentioned, had been a Diosma student himself. He didn't, though I don't, as far as I recollect, didn't explain much about the Diosma studentship. And I think the only information I had at that time was a brief paragraph in the university calendar, just saying what it was, basically. And I have to admit that what drew my attention first and foremost was the reference to 165 pounds, which was on offer. Doesn't sound very much these days, but it was quite a large sum. And I needed the money. <laughs> the point one point was that before becoming a postgraduate, I'd spent two years in the army. And at that time, I'd managed to achieve that financial independence from one's family, which seems to been talked about a lot in recent weeks. And when I started research, I was then, I suppose, 22, approaching 23, I felt I ought to try and maintain that independence. But that wasn't particularly easy. I'd saved a certain amount of money when I was in the army because uh, the government paid most of the things I had to have. And I had a small amount of money from what I think was then called a state studentship, but it didn't amount to much. And certainly I didn't have enough for living expenses and the costs of travel. So I was 
very anxious and keen on getting the De Elsmer studentship. <coughs> and it meant that I could just about make ends meet. I suppose, as Micawber might have said, uh, uh, or he did say, um, income, 20 pounds, expenditure, 19, 19 and sixpence, result, happiness. <laughs> so the Dalesman studentship was valuable to me in the first place, it had enabled me to pursue the research which I wanted to be engaged upon. It provided the money which I needed. But it also, of course, provided much more. Now, when I first went to Madrid, I divided my time. Uh, part of the time was spent in the Archivo Historico Nacional up in Serrano, which had manuscripts about the Templars in Aragon and also in Valencia, not in Catalonia. <coughs> uh, so that part of my time spent there. The rest of the time I spent at the Instituto in the library. It was, of course, a fairly small library. Um, there was, of course, the Biblioteca Nacional. Um, but I found it useful. It had a lot of relevant material and it had some runs of periodicals, which I haven't been able to get hold of, in Bodley. So I had these two places to work. In the Archivo, I enjoyed myself because I was looking at manuscript material for the first time. I was getting to grips with something new. Although it was in circumstances which I think would have seemed pretty primitive nowadays. Because the Parchments I was looking at were tied up in bundles, legajos, and that meant the bigger parchments were folded several times. And sometimes, if there were large parchments and on quite thick parchments, really the only way one could have read them would be, I think, by standing on them. Uh, but I thought perhaps it was a bit unwise to do that. Although, I did notice in the archive at that time, it wasn't unusual for people to write on the manuscripts, the documents that they were using. <laughs> but I thought I'd best stop short of standing on documents. <laughs> the archive, though, although had all these documents I wanted to look at, was not a particularly hospitable place. The archivists kept well clear of the reading room in fact, I don't think either then or later I ever met the woman who was then in charge of the military orders section of the archive. She kept herself shut away doing, I think, her own research in some office somewhere in the building. And the only members of staff in the reading room were two elderly men who did the fetching and carrying of documents. Uh, I was told later that they were usually ex-soldiers, who I suppose had been pensioned off more or less with these jobs in the archive. So they weren't really very much use if one had a query of any sort or difficult reading which you wanted some help on. But they had a fairly cushy time because there weren't very many people at all working in the archive reading 
the documents. Uh, there were, when I first went there, no young research students of my own age. The few people who did work in the, or read in the archive were elderly, or at least they seemed to be elderly, and I think they were, as far as I could tell, usually genealogists rather than historians. So I felt that I was a rather solitary figure in the archive. Uh, and that really contrasted with the situation in the institute, where I went um, part of every day to read. Because apart from providing pleasant surroundings for reading, uh, they were also very welcoming. At that time, the librarian was Pedro Longas. Now, he was, I think then, well into his 70s, uh, and probably, I suppose, sort of semi-retired. He had earlier been in charge of the manuscript section of the Biblioteca Nacional. Uh, but he wasn't just an archivist and a librarian, he was also a historian. And he'd written on various aspects of Aragonese history, because I think he came originally from somewhere near Zaragoza. Uh, and including writing on the 12th century. Uh, I, I found out later that he'd also written a book, which I must admit I've never read, on the religious life of the Moriscos, which I found, in fact, was reprinted not all that many years ago. It had been published about 1915 or so originally, but it's obviously quite an important work. So I found Pedro Longas very helpful indeed. Um, in the first place, he was able to offer advice about reading and I seem to remember when I was sitting at a desk there, he would come up with a book in his hand and say something like, I think you might find this interesting to look at. And it, of course, it always was. So I, I got help in that way. But we also were able to talk about Aragonese history, particularly as it affected the Templars, such as, for example, the situation in 1134, on the death of Alfonso I. Now, Alfonso had no direct heirs, and he perhaps made, well, he made the perhaps unwise decision to bequeath his lands, he ruled both Aragon and Navarre, to the Templars, the Hospitallers, and the Canons of the Holy Sepulchre, which, of course, that didn't go down very well in various quarters. And the will was never implemented, although the beneficiaries did get some compensation later. But what happened was that uh, Alfonso's brother, Ramiro, who had been a monk, came out of his monastery, took over Aragon after his brother's death, uh, married a daughter, I think it was, of the Duke of Aquitaine, <coughs> produced a daughter, who at the age of one was betrothed to the Count of Barcelona and then retired back to the monastery uh, and the Count of Barcelona took over control of Aragon. 
Uh, and this is a subject which is still much discussed, and so I was able to talk it over with Pedro Longas. <coughs> so, <coughs> um, I have always found him very helpful. I took to him, I think I must have seemed a pretty ignorant young man, because I'd only been doing a few months of research, and there was a vast amount I didn't know. And there was also the drawback that my Spanish was pretty rude, my spoken Spanish was pretty rudimentary, because I hadn't learnt Spanish at school. I'd done Latin, French, and German, and not Spanish. But he was always very courteous and patient, and always very willing to help. So I learned a lot from him, and I had a great respect <coughs> for him. And so I was therefore very grateful for the Bayelsworth studentship, not only for the money it provided, but also particularly for the welcome and assistance I got, particularly from Pedro Longas. Now, the time I spent in Madrid as a De Osma student, I suppose, set the pattern for the rest of my research career. Because I went on from, Barcelona, from Madrid to Barcelona to work in the Crown Archive there. And that had the documentation, Templar documentation for Catalonia but it also was, of course, the Royal Archive, and it had a succession of registers, royal registers, starting, I think, in the later 1250s, and multiplying very rapidly. So there was a vast amount of material in Barcelona which I had to work on. Although progress was sometimes difficult and sometimes quite slow. The registers, surprisingly perhaps at that time, were in paper. And over the centuries, quite large amounts of it had been eaten. And somehow it always seemed to be the crucial word which had been eaten. Uh, there was also the problem that there was a lack of calendaring or indexing of the sources. Now, in this country, the PRO had started producing calendars of the various series of roles in the later 19th century. But, uh, and it's still doing it. But this didn't happen in Barcelona. And so if you were looking at the royal registers, it was a matter just of turning over the pages, hoping you'd come across something which was relevant. And sometimes you did, and something exciting cropped up. Sometimes you didn't. And I remember later, on a later visit, uh, talking to an American historian who was working on a particular Jewish community in Valencia in the later Middle Ages, coming up to me one day and saying, this was the most depressing week he'd spent, because he'd spent a whole week turning over pages finding absolutely nothing which was relevant to his subject. Um, I hope, though, he did finish it in the end. <laughs> well, having worked in Barcelona, the thesis eventually got finished, 
and in time uh, it was published in a revised and enlarged form. Uh, and, and then, of course, I did continue with study of the military orders, although I branched out rather looking at the military orders in general uh, and their activities on the various fronts of Christendom in the Holy Land, the Baltic, as well as in Iberia, but also in the countries where they had no military function, uh, but where their estates and convents were important for supplying resources and recruits for the frontier areas. And I've written about uh, aspects of government and personnel as well as about the military activities. So that has occupied most of my research time uh, and it's a continuation of what I was doing as a day Osma student. And I have branched out further still at times looking at crusades, particularly the Second Crusade, uh, commutations of crusading vows. And uh, also at one time I wrote something on Western converts to Islam in the crusading period. But the largest part of my search, research has also always been on the military orders. Although, of course, for much of my career, that occupied a secondary position. Because when I started as an academic, uh, academic posts were very much thought of as teaching posts. You, weren't, you were expected to do some research, but you weren't expected to churn out books or articles every year. And sabbaticals were either non-existent or rare. I remember I didn't get a sabbatical, I think, until I'd been teaching for about 15 years. And then the head of the department said rather grudgingly, well, yes, we might be able to spare you for a term. We'll have to see. Uh, whereas later on, in sabbaticals became an entitlement and much more frequent. Uh, so uh, I wasn't working on military orders for a great deal in many of those early years. <coughs> uh, and in fact, uh, I suppose a large amount of my published work has come out since I retired, because this is the, really the first time that I've had whole time I could devote to research. And so I'm afraid I'm contributing to that unending flood of publications which seems to afflict us now, um, although my contribution, I think, has been very small. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.